Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 147. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You can like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can also watch this podcast. So go on out there and do that. If you don't want to look for all those things, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you got all my social media buttons. You can subscribe to my podcast, and, uh, or at least all my social media accounts that way. Also, while you're there, if you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show from my webpage. It's brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way if you would like. And if you would also like to support the show another way, you can go to mcclanahanacademy.com where you can purchase my course on secession or my course on Alexander Hamilton. They're always there. You can also sign up there for free, and you'll get announcements for forthcoming classes and anything else that I'm doing for, to promote those courses. And, of course, you can get Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. So going out to redbubble.com, you can get uh, shirts, stickers, skins for your iPhone, iPad, mugs, all kinds of stuff. A lot of good stuff there at redbubble.com. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I also teach at Learn True, T R U E, history.com. So you can go over there, subscribe at learntruehistory.com, and you'll get courses taught by yours truly, Kevin Goodsman, Tom Woods, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, uh, on down the line. So a lot of great stuff over there. So go on out and do that as well. Okay, well, this uh, episode of the Brian McClanahan Show is actually driven by a listener request. So let me read what this listener asked for. And he said, uh, hello, Dr. McClanahan. I was wondering if you could do a podcast talking about the importance of religion in the United States, or at least its importance in early U.S. history. Perhaps the First Amendment could be woven into this topic. Well, this is a great idea. It's something I wrote a lot about several years ago. In fact, it's coming up on almost a decade ago when I uh, wrote my uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. And also I wrote an article for it, short little article, uh, at Town Hall. I'm sorry, not at Town Hall, at humanevents.com. Uh, back in 2010. So my pig came out in 2009, and uh, my article on it came out in 2010. And then, of course, I also covered the topic in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, which came out in 2012. So it's been a while since I covered this, but I think it's a good, uh, a, a nice topic, uh, because there's a lot of things you can get into with this. Um, and, of course, this is not the David Barton position where we have a Christian, quote-unquote, nation. In fact, I think you, you can't really successfully argue that the founding documents of the United States were not secular. Uh, of course, the, the, the founding generation were religious people, primarily Christians. And I'm going to read some of the things I wrote on this in these uh, various publications that I have. But uh, to say that we have a Christian nation, quote-unquote, is a little bit off-mark, um, because our founding documents, now you can point to the Declaration and say, well, yeah, but Jefferson brought up the Creator in the Declaration. This is true. Uh, he talked about natural rights. It's um, something that's uh, very much influenced by Christianity. And, uh, but, and of course, we have the Constitution, uh, but the Constitution is, is a secular document. Now, the state constitutions, on the other hand, are a different story. And so I'll get into that. And there's, there's a, there is a vast difference between the state constitutions and the United States Constitution. And so when you look at the people in general, the founding generation, the people of the states, you find that they were very religious people and, and predominantly Christian. 
So I think that's an important distinction to make. You can't just look at, say, the Constitution and say, well, I mean, it's a secular document and these people were not religious at all. They didn't care about it. Simply not true. Uh, not true at all. Um, when you look at the, the people themselves and the culture of the, of the various states, certainly heavily influenced by religion. Uh, one thing that you can say when you look at you know, cultural dynamics and you look at New England, for example, uh, you primarily had in New England your stronger Protestant sects, meaning uh, you had there um, you know, the uh, separatists. You had the pilgrims and you had the Puritans, which were the Baptists and the Methodists. Uh, you had uh, a large number of Quakers in Pennsylvania, and so in that area, you know, in that part, basically north of the Mason-Dixon, you had uh, various separatist groups, and then also puritanical groups. Now, south of that, you had much more, south of the Mason-Dixon, you had much more Orthodox Christian sects, uh, including the Anglican Church, the Orthodox Anglican Church, the Catholic Church in Maryland, uh, which is an Orthodox Church, and but you did have Presbyterians on the frontier, which would fit more in line with, say, the uh, Protestants of the North. So uh, there's there is a diversity there, but generally all these people were Christian, and so they had a a a, a Christian worldview. Um, and so let me get into some of these things. And of course, I've got uh, this this article I wrote in 2010 up on the website here. I've got uh, my founding uh, fathers' guide to the Constitution, and also my politically incorrect guide to the founding fathers. So I'll go through and read some of the things I've already written on this. I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel, but uh, this is a, a way to answer the question of, you know, how important was religion in early American history? And we'll just focus on that on that period of time. We look at uh, the founding generation. We look at state constitutions, the Constitution for the United States, the uh, and of course the Bill of Rights. When you look at the First Amendment, and I'll weave that in at the end of this because, of course, that's the last real piece to all of this in explaining. Uh, religion in the founding generation. So uh, let, let me start with this Religion in the Founding Generation, published in October of 2010. And so I'll just start reading it here. The role Christianity played in the founding period is often a subject of considerable debate, particularly for those on the left who would want Americans to forget that the founding generation, or the founding generation in general, leftists will often cherry-pick quotations that show the founding generation was anti-Christian or at the very least suspicious of religion in public life. Most often, Thomas Jefferson's Bible or James Madison's views on the separation of church and state are held as concrete evidence that all of the members of the founding generation thought the same way. That's funny because these same people often scream things like, the founding fathers never agreed on anything, so you right-wingers can't claim those your own. Yet the question of religion in the founding generation is a nice case study of how that generation generally did agree on fundamental principles. The question should not be if the founding generation were Christians, because most were. It should be which members of the founding generation are being used as examples. So when you look at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, 50 of the 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 were practicing Christians. Benjamin Franklin often used as a great non-Christian example by the left, praised his Christian sister in letters for her devotion to the faith, and during the Constitutional Convention called for daily prayer to help move the business of the group. Jefferson had his Bible, but he never published it in his lifetime for fear of reprisal from the Virginia community, and he never let it be known publicly that he was a non-Christian. Uh, Madison consistently argued for the separation of church and state, but considered a career in the ministry as a young man. And for every Jefferson or Madison or Franklin, there were at least a handful of members of the founding generation who were pious Christians. Many of them are not household names because they didn't have the same or leave the same written legacy as their more famous counterparts, 
but they had as much of a role in shaping the state and federal governments as Jefferson, Madison, or Franklin. So when you look at that, I mean, this is some of the things you know that I've already said. And of course, one of the things that's important to understand about this is the Declaration of Independence in the last paragraph did say, as Jefferson said, that they're creating free and independent states. Uh, and so as free, independent, free and independent states, these states could do what they wanted, and religion was considered part of that. So when you look at uh, various early constitutions, and so you take, for example, the 1776 Constitution of Pennsylvania. Uh, when you look at Section 10 of that particular document, it says, quote, A quorum of the House of Representatives shall consist of two-thirds of the whole number of members elected, and having met and chosen their speaker, shall, shall each of them, before they proceed to business, take and subscribe, as well as the oath or affirmation of fidelity and allegiance here and after directed as the following oath or affirmation. So after they're sworn in, this is what they have to say. Quote, I do swear or affirm that as a member of this assembly, I will not propose or assent to any bill, vote, or resolution, which shall appear to free injurious to the people, nor do or consent to any act or thing, whatever, that shall have a tendency to lessen or abridge the rights and privileges as declared in the Constitution of the state, but will in all things conduct myself as a faithful, honest representative and guardian of the people according to the best of only judgment and abilities. And each member, before he takes a seat, shall make and subscribe the following declaration. Quote, I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and the punisher of the wicked. I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. So this is coming from the 1776 Constitution of Pennsylvania. You had to take two oaths. One was very secular, the other religious. Same thing in Delaware. 1776 Constitution of Delaware. Quote, you have to swear this. Quote, I do profess faith in, the, in God the Father and in Jesus Christ his only Son and the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. So that's coming from the Constitution of Delaware. 1776, same time period of the Declaration. 1777, Constitution of Vermont. You have to take the following oath before you can take your seat. I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the, of the diverse, the rewarder of the good and punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration and own and profess the Protestant religion. So here we have it even more targeted. You have to be a Protestant to serve in the government of Vermont. North Carolina. This is the 1776 Constitution of North Carolina. This comes from uh, Article 20, I'm sorry, 32, that no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority either of the Old or New Testament or shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within the state. So you, it's a religious test. You can't even serve in the state of North Carolina in 1776 unless you're a Protestant. Same thing in South Carolina. Uh, you know, so this went down the line, uh, and this was commonplace. It was commonplace, as I said in this other piece. You know, there are some states, um, uh, for example, uh, New Jersey was a little more tolerant. Uh, declared that all Protestants were guaranteed freedom of worship, but it left the door open to abridge religious freedom for other denominations or sects. Uh, the 1776 Constitution of Maryland and, Maryland and 1780 Constitution of Massachusetts allowed for religious freedom for all Christians, and the Maryland State Constitution imposed a tax of supporting Christianity in the state. 
Georgia, in its 1777 constitution, granted religious freedom, provided the religion was not repugnant to the peace and safety of the state. The Virginia Constitution of 1776 included a right of freedom of worship, but in insisted that all men had a duty to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. Now, New York had perhaps the strictest statement against an established religion, and it prohibited clergymen from holding office. But taken as a whole, you look at the states in the Union in 1776, and all of them had a dedication to Christianity. So that's out of that piece I wrote for Human Events. Um, and you look at what I wrote in, say, the uh, Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. I'm sorry, the, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, excuse me. So in that particular book, as I get into religion there, <clears throat> uh, I talk about religion and what they meant by religion. And of course, you look at the colonial period, and you have to understand a lot of this is coming. You can't look at uh, religious toleration in the colonial period in a vacuum. You're talking about a period of time uh, which was on the, the, you know, on the tail end of very violent religious wars in the 17th century in particular, in England and France and elsewhere. And so the founding generation were certainly aware of that. And uh, you even had some religious uh, problems in the colonies themselves. You know, for example, Georgia uh, prohibited Catholics from living there. Uh, Maryland had some issues because Maryland was a Catholic colony originally, but there were Protestants there. And, of course, Quakers and Baptists and other people uh, were persecuted in uh, Massachusetts, in fact, heavily persecuted in Massachusetts. And so this idea of toleration was something that was important for many in the founding generation as we move forward. It didn't mean that they were always tolerant, uh, particularly when you look at the colonial period, but uh, certainly by the time you get to the late 18th century, there was a push for toleration. As I say in uh, my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, the founders believed in religious liberty, but this does not mean they were complete opponents of state-sponsored churches. For example, both Massachusetts and Connecticut maintained established churches well into the 19th century, and the constituents of each state would not have ratified the Constitution had they believed the document would destroy state authority over the issue. Patrick Henry argued that Virginians could belong to any church, but they must belong to some church and pay taxes to support it. Certainly men such as Jefferson and Madison argued for separation of church and state, but Jefferson issued proclamations of thanksgiving while governor of Virginia. The wall of separation applied principally to the federal government. State governments had greater flexibility and autonomy. Jefferson, in authoring the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, maintained that all men had freedom of conscience, but he also recognized that most, if not all, Virginians were religious people. The Virginia Statute simply aimed to prevent the hypocrisy and meanness that he thought naturally flowed from government-established churches. History, he believed, had already proved his point. Uh, to say the Founding Fathers were godless men, and this is usually said of Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, is to distort their views. Allusions of, to God saturate early American documents. Jefferson opens the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom with, quote, whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free and believed it was God, being, quote, the author of our religion, Lord of both body and mind, who resisted religious coercion. Franklin did not attend church much of his life, but he spoke of the necessity of religion in letters to his about uh, Puritan sister. He also recommended prayer breaks during the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, which I also said already. Uh, George Washington believed God saved the revolution and became a uh, decidedly devout Christian following his years on the battlefield. As President Washington issued the first proclamation of a national thanksgiving on 3 October 1789 in order to, quote, acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, 
and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Um, so uh, Hamilton had um, uh, found religion as in the Episcopal Church uh, before he was killed in 1803. So uh, certainly, when you look at what was going on in the founding generation, you find that these people were decidedly, decidedly Christian, or at least tolerant of Christianity and uh, religious uh, uh, sects. And of course, they also uh, certainly uh, were religious people, um, without, without question, from during the colonial period, moving into the founding period. Now, this brings up the issue of the most important issue, which is the First Amendment. Of course, the question being, how can I weave the First Amendment into this discussion? And so I do that in my uh, Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. And uh, when, I, when I go through Chapter 6 uh, in this particular book, um, I, I, I start Chapter 6, which is Amendments, with the discussion of the Tenth and Ninth Amendments, because those were perhaps the most important amendments of the bunch. But oftentimes people focus on the First Amendment as saying, well, that, that First Amendment is very important very, uh, you know, for the uh, future of the United States, and of course free speech and free press and and of course, religion is, is in that as well. Uh, but it was not the most important amendment to the founding generation. However, it is one that is uh, controversial today. And I talk about this issue also in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America in the chapter on Hugo Black uh, in incorporation with the 14th Amendment. So, But under the original Constitution, the First Amendment only applied to the states, and it still does. I mean, the 14th Amendment didn't change anything. This is a misconception about the 14th. But it, the important thing to understand about the, the First Amendment did not apply to the states. It applied only to the general government. So the states could do what they wanted. And I think that's something that you have to get out of this, is that you know, the states had a lot of leeway here. The states could have state-established churches. You know, Patrick Henry thought some, everyone should tithe to a church. Um, so this was uh, something that um, the founding generation believed pretty strongly. And even, even John Adams uh, who is oftentimes considered to be maybe one of these non-Christian founders, believed that a certain element of Christianity was necessary to maintain good government in the uh, American states because you needed that moral underpinning of society. If you didn't have it, society would fall apart. So let's talk about the, the First Amendment. Uh, and I say in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, the First Amendment is arguably the most famous and most debated, debated amendment in the Bill of Rights. Madison combined five civil liberties into the first in order to condense the various proposals from the state ratifying conventions. There are several important components to the First Amendment, not the least of which is the first five words, Congress shall make no law. This established a precedent for the next nine amendments and amplified the preamble to the Bill of Rights. They were designed to limit the powers of the general government only. States were exempt and could, if the several legislatures wished, pass laws establishing a church, limiting the press, outlawing seditious speech, or restricting the right of assemblage. Madison attempted to incorporate portions of the Bill of Rights into the state constitutions, for example, prohibiting the establishment of state churches, but this was rejected. As with the other amendments in the Bill of Rights, the intent of the first is easy to ascertain, ascertain and only made cloudy by silver-tongued lawyers and judges bent on political gain. The first liberty protected by the First Amendment, freedom of religion, has received the most attention. What did the founders mean by the establishment of religion? The Virginia and North Carolina proposals made clear their definition. Quote, No particular religious sect or society ought to be favored or established by law in preference to others. In other words, the Congress would not be able to legally establish a, quote, religious sect or society. 
that is a specific Christian denomination as the Church of the United States in the manner of the established Church of England. But this did not mean, or by any means implied, that the founders intended public life to be devoid of religion. Amos Singletary said in the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention that he was troubled by that, quote, there was no provision that men in power should have any religion. And though he hoped to see Christians, yet by the Constitution a papist or an infidel was as eligible as they. In this instance, we are giving great power to we know not whom. Thomas Lusk lamented in the same convention that Roman Catholics, papists, and pagans might be introduced into office and that popery and the Inquisition may be established in America. So here you have this very strong Protestant strain, separatist strain, attacking Catholicism in the North. Uh, Isaac Backus, a leading proponent of freedom of conscience in colonial America, answered that because the Constitution forbade religious tests, which it does in Article 6, Clause 3, popery or some other tyrannical way of worship could not be established by the Congress. Daniel Shute, however, provided the clearest explanation of the word religion. This is his quote. Far from limiting my charity and confidence to men of my own denomination and religion, I suppose, and I believe, sir, that there are worthy characters among men of every denomination, among Quakers, the Baptists, the Church of England, the Papists, and even among those who have no other guide in the way of virtue in heaven than the dictates of natural religion. So he's saying that what he's talking about here are sex, religious sex, but he's, he's clearly saying that he thinks, even though at the end he says, well, I mean, we might have people who aren't religious in office as well, too. Virginia and North Carolina were the two states that proposed an amendment guaranteeing religious freedom, so their views might deserve special weight. In North Carolina, Henry Abbott equated religion with denomination. This is his quote. I believe the majority of the community are Presbyterians. I am, for my part, against any exclusive establishment, but if there were any, I would prefer the Episcopal. So this is what he meant by religion. North Carolina's governor, Samuel Johnston, defined religion the same way and commented that the religions of the states included members of the Presbyterian, Baptist, and Episcopal churches, as well as Quakers and other sects. Some members of the convention used the word religion in its broader sense, but there was a unanimity that morality and religion were bedrocks of a stable society. Madison made the most revealing statement in regard to the intent of the Establishment Clause during debate over the amendment in 1789. He proposed that the word national be inserted before religion. This would, he hoped, satisfy the minds of honorable gentlemen. He believed that the people feared one sect might obtain a preeminence, or two combined together and establish a religion to which they would compel others to conform. He thought if the word national was introduced, it would, per it would point the amendment directly to the object it was intended to prevent, which was creating a church of the United States. In no way was it to inhibit the constitutionally protected free exercise of religion, and again the First Amendment applied only to the general government. States had free reign on the issue, and most had either an established church or a strict religious test for office holders. So moving forward, when you get to uh, Hugo Black and incorporation of the 14th, this is where it becomes very problematic, because Black is going back and saying, oh, wait a second here, Madison and Jefferson really wanted the First Amendment to apply to the states, and this is where he reads a letter that Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists, where the Baptists at that time acknowledged that that was not the case. That was not the case at all. So um, certainly, I think when you look at this particular issue, uh, the Baptists themselves said, uh, we understand that the First Amendment doesn't apply to the states, but we hope one day that the spirit of religious freedom, this is what Jefferson said as well, will 
go across the United States and people will enjoy religious toleration no matter where they are. That was the point. Um, and so this hope answers the question. The founding generation were decidedly religious, mostly Christian, uh, and certainly interested in toleration, but at the state level, there were religious tests, absolutely at the state level. They wanted, they didn't want a church of the United States, but certainly this not, did not mean they, they thought that the United States government would be devoid of religion. They had a prayer before every session. And this was brought up uh, in the Congress at one point, so uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the early founding period. So I think that uh, to answer the question, you, certainly the, the founding generation uh, were very religious people and, and primarily Christian. Uh, though the Constitution itself was a secular document, you look at the state constitutions and they were much more interested in having a definition of religion. And the idea that we have a union, a federal republic, they didn't want one section or one group from one section dominating the government and coercing the rest of the United States to becoming all Baptists or all Methodists or all Catholics or all Episcopalians, Presbyterians, whatever the case may be. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time. <laughs>